these weeks that I am um, speaking these, these last few weeks, the subject has been the five faculties. That's the most common uh, translation in our scene of uh, what's called the uh, Indriya. Uh, and um, the, um, these are very important uh, factors of meditation. They're very important faculties or capacities we have. And when I was practicing uh, meditation in Thailand, I was told that um, traditionally Vipassana teachers in Thailand uh, when they are listening to students give their <laughs> listening, listening <laughs> the um, uh, when meditation teachers are listening to their students uh, talk about their meditation experience, they're trying to listen to their experience um, uh, through the uh, perspective of these five faculties or capacities that the students have and to see uh, which of these need to be strengthened or which of them needs to come into balance or how to work with these five. And, um, and the five which we're going through are uh, confidence, sometimes called faith, but I think confidence is a better translation. Um, effort or energy or engagement. That's number two. And the third one is mindfulness. And the third one, the fourth one is um, uh, concentration. And then today we'll talk about what's usually called wisdom. And um, the, the word for faculties, the five faculties, comes from the name Indra, which is uh, one of the uh, chief gods of the Indian pantheon in the time of the Buddha. And it's kind of like the god who kind of controls, back then at least, the things changed up there in the skies. But back then, uh, it was um, the, one of the chief controlling kind of gods. Uh, gods are kind of in charge of the heavens, I guess. And so they had certain kind of power of control over things. And so some people then will translate these five faculties by the word uh, five controlling faculties. So there are five things which control the spiritual life or, the, or controlled meditation. Um, it might be an unfortunate translation into English because uh, we have such a strong association with the idea of control. Uh, we're control freaks. And, and, uh, and so uh, the idea of control might not be the best. But if you think of the you know, number of things which control the car that you're driving, certainly the driver controls it, the engine controls it, I guess the transmission system controls it. Um, you know, various things kind of control um, the, um, you know, how the car is driving, the speed controls it, and all kinds of things come into play. And you can adjust the different parts of a car to a certain degree in order to control better, or get more control or less control or something of the car. So, um, um, it's also said that these five faculties that are cultivated in meditation, developed or strengthened, can be developed to the point where they become, uh, rather than called faculties or capacities or potentials, they become powers that we have, powers we carry with us. So they become like strengths that we have kind of here with us, rather than something we potentially have that we can kind of develop. Uh, now they're developed, so they become strengths. Um, and it's said that these five faculties can um, uh, uh, 
they control a lot of different things, but one of the things they control is that they're opposites. That when you develop these strengths, you develop these capacities, the opposites won't be there. So the opposite of confidence is doubt. So if you develop, if you have a lot of doubt, then part of what needs to be developed is confidence. And its confidence will push aside or, or, uh, or not make it possible to have the doubt there. Then if your person is sluggish or lazy or lethargic or various kinds of things like that, then the energy factor uh, is the medicine for sloth or laziness, to, to arouse the energy, to arouse oneself in practice. And when, when we are aroused properly, when there's a really strong vitality, really strong engagement in a spiritual life, then sloth is not going to be part of it. And then mindfulness is, um, the, um, is what is the medicine for um, uh, what's usually translated into English as uh, heedlessness. I know of no English situation where we use the word heedlessness except in Buddhist texts. <laughs> I guess in the old, they used to talk used more about it. Any, any of you use the word heedless in your, in your day, day life? <laughs> yeah, some of you. But you know what it means, right? Uh, <laughs> and um, so to be careless or to be negligent, uh, not to be careful. Um, and then the um, concentration is the medicine for a scattered, agitated, restless mind. So when there's a lot of agitation, then we develop concentration too. And then wisdom is what is the medicine for ignorance, for not knowing. The word for wisdom in the five faculties is in Pali is panya. And some of you might know it better in the Sanskrit version, which is prajna. And it's most commonly translated into English as wisdom, which probably is fine in many situations. Though I prefer um, in these five faculties to translate it differently, to translate it as discernment. And it's fairly common for translating English, uh, uh, Buddhist words into English to need to use different trans- English translations in different situations. Like the word Dharma, there's like 52 meanings of the word Dharma. And so you have to, people, translators will translate it differently depending on the context. So in the context of the five faculties, I prefer the word discernment than wisdom. Wisdom, Buddhism is often considered to be a wisdom tradition. Wis- the word wisdom is sometimes synonymous with truth or reality as it is or the ultimate reality, ultimate teaching. Um, wisdom is a very powerful word in Buddhism. And sometimes Buddhism, as I said, is called the wisdom tradition, where wisdom and compassion are the key pillars or the wings that support the tradition itself or the practice itself. And wisdom is a great word. I love the word wisdom. I think it's such a, so evocative in my mind. There's so many different things that are, are, that are wise, or so many different aspects to wisdom. And I think everybody will have a different angle on wisdom to different people develops or different kind of uh, perspectives on what is wise or different ideas. And um, I came across this uh, in the last few weeks. I thought this was very wise. And I thought I would share one, one little piece of wisdom that someone came with. Um, this is a book... Um, called Novice to Master. 
And the subtitle is An Ongoing Lesson in the Extent of My Own Stupidity. <laughs> now, is that really wise statement or is that a foolish statement? Anyway, this is uh, Soko Morinaga, who is a very famous, or, or very, uh, I guess, famous Zen master in Japan who died a few years ago, uh, who was um, abbot of uh, some very famous monasteries in, Japan, in, in Kyoto. Um, so he's not any old fool. If I were to sum up the past 40 years of my life, the time since I became a monk, I would have to say that it has been an ongoing lesson in the extent of my own stupidity. When I speak of my stupidity, I do not refer to something that is innate, but rather to the false impressions that I've cleverly stockpiled layer upon layer in my imagination. Whenever I travel to foreign countries to speak, I am invariably asked to focus on one central issue. Just what is enlightenment? This thing, enlightenment, however, is a state that one cannot understand only through experience. It cannot be explained or grasped through words alone. Through practice, Zen training is not a matter of memorizing the wondrous, wonderful words found in the sutras, and in the records of ancient teachers. Rather, these words must serve as an impetus to crush the false notions of one's imagination. The purpose of practice is not to increase knowledge, but to scrape the scales off the eyes, to pull the plugs out of the ears. Through practice, one comes to see reality. And although it is said that no medicine can cure folly, whatever prompts one to realize I was a fool, is, in fact, just such medicine. So, you know, he kind of begins talking slightly about enlightenment. And what he offers um, is um, not a definition of what enlightenment is in the kind of wondrous way, all the glory of enlightenment, but rather says, um, as he matured, as he developed his practice, he became increasingly aware of how foolish he is or was. And um, maybe that's a flip side of enlightenment. With enlightenment, the clear seeing of, of our nature, of who we are, of um, seeing of a possibility, shows us also how we have been living. Show, shows us uh, the foolishness we've been living by, the delusions we've been living by, the attach, unnecessary attachments and clingings we've been living by, the unnecessary fears that we've been living by. And so it's really seeing something and seeing what is not necessary and scraping the scales from our eyes and seeing anew. So that was one, one kind of version of wisdom, someone who understood uh, you know, something. Another little uh, piece of wisdom that I like uh, is what someone once said. Um, uh, they offered that um, a wonderful question to carry with you in your practice as you go about your life. You can carry, sometimes teachers will give, one, give students one question and, um, and they have to carry that one question with them um, and, uh, until 
maybe until they die, but to carry that one question with them as their guide in their spiritual life. And um, this one question that one person was given was, um, uh, what is left out? What's left out? Ask that over and over again. What's left out here? What's being left out? Is my neighbor being left out? Is my feelings being left out? Is my environment being left out? What's been, what am I leaving out here? What, what am I leaving out of awareness? What am I leaving out of the, my heart? What am I close to? What am I... And so, you know, to hold that question over and over again and ask yourself that question uh, is a wise question. and It can lead to wisdom if we really kind of apply it in all kinds of situations in our life. Partly because many people uh, find themselves closed, shut down, or turned away, or attached, or stuck in some way. And what's being left out is a kind of a question to kind of open up into a wider sense of reality. So Buddhism is a wisdom tradition, and wisdom is... um, said to be acquired many different ways. Uh, Buddhism does not uh, denigrate the kind of wisdom that can come from study, from teachings, from reading. In the old days, they, would, they, they called it wisdom that came from listening because they didn't have books. And um, there's one form of wisdom. It's the wisdom that can come from reading and, or listening or, or um, learning from others. And um, the second kind of wisdom is the wisdom that can come from thinking, uh, uh, reflecting in, uh, about our lives, thinking about our lives, thinking about truth and reality of practice. And that also is not denigrated. It has a place in Buddhism to reflect and think and to contemplate. Sometimes, I'm, I, occasionally, I'm around people who've done Buddhist practice for some time who have some idea that they're not supposed to think, that thinking is somehow bad and thinking is an enemy to spiritual life. Um, But my my own experience has been that thinking has been a very important part of my overall life as a human being. And um, I'm very grateful for my thinking. It's gotten me certainly into plenty of trouble, um, but it's also something that um, has been very valuable. It's gotten me out of trouble too. Then uh, the third kind of wisdom is the wisdom that comes from practice. And this is kind of a hierarchy. So... The wisdom that comes out of practice is considered to be the most profound or the most important or the most transformative form of wisdom. And this coming out of practice means that it's coming out of your own experience, your own life, your own practice. Um, the Buddha once said, um, I, um, I can only point out the way, the path. You have to walk it. You can, um, uh, th- there's certain things that other people cannot do for you. So, some other people, uh, this guy says here in this book, he, he says, other people can't pee for you. <laughs> certain, things, certain things you have to do for yourself. And um, so in that category of peeing and things is um, developing uh, deep spiritual wisdom. No one else can do it for you in the depths of it. You have to do it for yourself. You have to practice and engage in some way yourself. And that's um, uh, acquired through practice, through engagement, And when you come to the five faculties, then a certain form of wisdom is the wisdom that comes from discernment. And discernment here is much bigger than 
thinking about something or understanding things thing analytically. In fact, thinking about things in meditation um, can be a hindrance to meditation practice, to analyzing what's going on in some analytical, contemplative or, or, or cognitive way can get in the way. Though it might have a very important place other, place, other parts of one's life. In meditation, we don't want to investigate or be discerning uh, in a thoughtful way if it makes the mind more agitated. Um, so what is discernment or what is wisdom here as these five faculties? As a faculty, it's something that we all have. It's something not only we all have, but it's operating all the time to a certain degree. And what we're asked to do in meditation is to strengthen it or highlight or heighten our capacity for discernment. It's said in, in uh, the Buddhist tradition that um, 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 some, sometimes that a mind which is liberated or a mind which is they don't say it this way but just say it lightly a, a mind that's in a natural state that's not colored by greed, hate and delusion or fear or attachment that's not uh, trying trying to um, gain anything or becoming anything or push anything away, the mind that just said rest deeply with itself, will also be involved in discernment, in, in the process of coming to wisdom, in cognition. Sometimes it's called the cognitive functioning of emptiness. Um, and you can watch it, you know, just I see it in young children, very young children. Uh, their minds are awake and alert and, you know, kind of discerning and, dis- and understanding what's going on in life. There's kind of curiosity. Um, I'm amazed that my one and a half year old uh, has uh, fascination with tinker toys. There's a lot of discernment, a lot of engagement there. No one told him to do this. Uh, he's not being propelled by fear or, you know, anything. It just kind of seems like it's just a natural functioning of his mind. So, in meditation, also, uh, we want to kind of allow the natural functioning of discernment to move through us and not put it in hold or not squash it or inhibit it. One way of talking about this, I believe, is to say that we are supposed to bring our intelligence with us into meditation practice. That meditation practice is meant to be to use all your intelligence. Now we know nowadays that we have lots of different kinds of intelligences. It doesn't mean that you have to be intelligent. Uh, you know, some, some, some kind of comparative way, like, you know, 180 IQ or something. Uh, what it means is that whatever intelligence you have, uh, we want to use it. We want to engage, engage it for the purpose of developing the spiritual life and developing the path of freedom and liberation. And um, so, as a, as a five faculties... It's the discernment faculty which tracks and gauges how things are going. It's the discernment factor that discerns or discriminates or sees differences between um, what's go- in, in what's going on. It's a discernment factor, faculty that can notice, oh, right now I'm tense. It's possible not to be tense. This is what's useful to do in order to let go of my tension. It's a discernment faculty which will notice, oh, I think I'm straining. Mindfulness notices I'm straining in my practice. It's a discernment factor that says, oh, 
what would happen if I just uh, relaxed my, my eyes, my jaw, my shoulders a little bit? Maybe that would help. I wouldn't strain so much. It's a discernment factor that kind of finds its way to how to make a correction, how to adjust what's going on. It's the mindfulness that recognizes that, oh, um, I am uh, pretty lackadaisical in my effort here. I'm just kind of here meditating, but I'm not really here. I'm just kind of letting my mind wander freely up and around and all over the universe it goes. And, you know, occasionally I remember to bring it back and, you know, but mindfulness recognizes not only that I'm not so present, but recognizes, you know, I'm not really putting much effort into this. I'm not really that serious. Um, I think it's enough just to kind of be sitting here and, you know, and, um, you know, and, you know, something will happen by magic or whatever. Um, and then it's a discernment factor that says, oh, now that I've recognized that I'm being lackadaisical, what is a wiser way, more useful way to be present in my meditation? Do I need to arouse more energy and more effort? Do I need to apply myself more in what I'm doing here? And maybe that's the case. But it isn't just simply asking, saying, do I need to apply myself? Discernment shows you how to apply yourself or suggests various ways. Oh, to apply myself, what I need to do now is sit up straighter. What I need to do now is to um, uh, um, heighten my mindfulness, try to be more mindful um, more clearly mindful moment by moment what's happening. Have more continuity of mindfulness and more strength of mindfulness in the moment right now. So discernment kind of helps us find the way, sees the possibility of the way, sees the path in the forest, for example, or, or searches out the path in the forest. Um, I believe to some degree this uh, discernment is operating all the time. And what we're asked to do in looking at these five faculties is how to use discernment in a way that strengthens or heightens or improves or develops our spiritual life. And um, for that, and for, dis- for the purpose of discernment, and f- we need to know for what, what is the purpose or what is the goal that we want to be discerning. Wisdom is not just simply wisdom in the abstract, but there's a there's a sense of a goal or a purpose or a direction that um, our life is about. And if you have a sense of a goal, then you can talk about being discerning. What is discerning? What is helpful for finding that goal, for pursuing that goal? For you know, where, where is this? What, how do I find that? If I know I want to go to Los Angeles, then you can ask the question: Which roads will take you there? But if you don't, if you know you, know you want to go somewhere, but no one's told you where. Uh, then you know it's really hard to find your way. So some sense of where you're going is really necessary. And that's part of the wisdom faculty, is you've already reflected and thought well about to have a really good sense of what you're doing and why you're doing it. The thing about this is that there's a lot of different things you could do that are wise. Uh, there's a lot of different spiritual teachings about what the goal of the spiritual life is like, including wonderful spiritual teachings that say the goal is to have no goal. But that's also to have some sense of where the path is. Oh, the path is found in not having a goal. The path is found in not being uh, directing myself in any particular direction. But even that involves discernment. Oh, now, right now, I'm goal-oriented. And what I'm trying to practice is goalless practice. I'm not trying to make anything happen. But, that's what I'm, but my mind is trying to control what's going on. It's trying to manipulate. 
Discernment, mindfulness sees that and discernment says, okay, how do I correct for that? What do I have to do here? Uh, do I have to do nothing and just see it? Just be mindful and be honest with what's going on? Or do I need to let go of something? Let, let go of my efforts. Let go of my will. Let go of the ideas I have of trying to improve myself. Let go of the ideas I have of, of self, of me, the one who's doing this thing here. So there's a process of engagement with our life, with our practice, which is enlivening. And part of what, in, uh, and all these five faculties is what enlivens the practice. We want to develop meditation to the point that we get absorbed in what we're doing. And getting absorbed in what we're doing is helpful if there's faith or confidence, if there's engagement, if there's mindfulness, if there's concentration, and if there is discerning, if there's questioning, if there's looking and wondering and exploring. How is this? What's going on now? And if you're you're really absorbed in this present moment experience and you find it fascinating, you're not going to think about the future. You're not going to think about the past or you're not going to plan your plan, you know, the next day or whatever you get caught up in. So discernment is one of those things that helps us get absorbed in what's happening. One of the important aspects of discernment is that uh, it's self-correcting. And what I mean by that is that when you hear that part of meditation practice is to be discerning and to be looking and wondering and kind of looking, where, how do, what do I need to do now and how to make a correction here? How do I let go of this? You know, what, what's the right thing to do here? It can sound like there's a lot of doing in meditation practice. It can sound like there's a lot of efforting, a lot of technique, a lot of analysis, a lot of, a lot of contemplation and thinking. Um, and it can give you a headache because most people are already so stressed out that mostly what they need to do when they sit and meditate is to do nothing for the first 10 years, um, just to cool out. And so it's very powerful to have a practice of, uh, practice of don't do anything, don't have a goal, just let go, just be, just be here. Because we're so used to becoming and, and doing and getting and all these things. And, um, um, but it's discernment, hopefully, will tell you, oh, right now what I most need is not to listen to a talk on discernment. Because, you know, that's just not what I need to hear. Because what I need to hear is just relax. Um, discernment is what tells you, oh, what I ha- what's happening now in my practice is I'm analyzing and thinking too much. What's happening right, right now is I'm too controlling in my situation. I think I'm in charge. And by controlling and thinking that I'm in charge, it's just getting in the way. So, so using mindfulness and discernment together, it becomes self-correcting. We can feel the tension. We feel the, getting, the, the way in which we get contracted or get agitated. Um, by how we're practicing, and then we make a correction for that. We, we adjust for that for the purposes of becoming more peaceful, for the purposes of becoming more calm or more concentrated, more at ease or happier. So if you have some sense of what is useful to develop in practice, then you can kind of sniff your way forward to what is helpful to get there. And if you have a sense of develop, that developing peace and calm is really key to developing a meditative mind, then you use your discernment just to the extent that it helps you develop greater calm and peacefulness. 
Part of the goal of meditation is to develop a very still mind, which is also very um, vital. The, the image that's used in the, in the, in the ancient text is that of a, of a candle flame, which is unflickering. So it doesn't move, just, just completely still. But you know that the, the candle flame inside is very dynamic. It's very bright and alive, in a sense. And so the same way with the mind that's very still is also very alert. And so, to use discernment to see, how can I cultivate a mind which is stiller? If I think too much about what I need to, what I need to do, I'm not going to be very still. So how can, I, how can I be discerning and still at the same time? How can I use that faculty of mind to lean into or, or feel my way into a place of greater stillness that's also, that's not dull, but actually is quite keen or quite sharp. Um, it's the role of mindfulness and discernment to know also when we should not be discerning at all. There comes various points in practice where we should not even be involved in that activity of being discerning what's going on, but actually just leave things alone in some radical, simple way. That also has an important place. But you use your intelligence to find that. So discernment, making a distinction, seeing, seeing differences, and seeing which, which, differences are, which side of the differences are helpful and which side of the differences are not helpful. And then learning how to engage in what's helpful or pick up what's helpful or to let go of what's not helpful. And there's a lot of things that uh, a wise life or practice will reveal. Um, so, for example, a person might discover that their life is a lot saner a lot calmer if they meditate every day. And so they do the, the work, the, the reflection to see what would it take to set up my life so that I can meditate every day. That's a, that's a function of discernment. We're discerning, we're making a distinction between things, sanity and insanity. And, um, and we're figuring out, oh, this is what I need to do to develop more sanity in my life or more calm. And so this is so then we do those things, hopefully, and set things up in such a way that we can do it. And then we sit down to meditate, for example, and we find out that in meditating that um, the mind is just really, really agitated. So you could just sit there and allow yourself to just be with the agitation. It might be useful sometimes. Sometimes I do that. I just be there with my thinking mind, my restless mind, and just being with it um, not doing anything with it, not pushing it away or fixing it or doing anything. Sometimes it's very wise for me because it just settles by itself. And if you leave it alone, it quiets down. Other times, I, um, I don't quiet down after a while or other times I get a sense uh, through my experience and my history of being with my mind, knowing it or whatever, that the particular kind of agitation I have right now um, uh, Really, what it does, it requires some careful attention. It's kind of like a, a friend who's agitated who just needs to be able to have someone to talk to so they can really hear you. Sometimes the mind needs some very quality attention from yourself. And so I need to really pay attention to this agitated mind, what, what it's like, the feelings behind it, 
Maybe there's fear or anxiety or, or irritation or anger or something, which is kind of fueling and keeping that agitation going. We need to listen really carefully. That's what's needed right now. And then, and then discernment maybe says, oh, well, how do I listen to it? How do I be with it? Do I do it just listen to the thoughts and the quality of my thinking? Do I feel the emotions? Or do I feel how it's being manifested in my body, the physical, physical aspects of, of being agitated? Um, so discernment kind of finds our way with the agitation, where to put our attention, where's the key, where's the door that helps us um, really connect with what's happening in a wise way. Or I'm sitting in meditation and I'm no, no longer agitated. And perhaps I'm sitting there and, and the mind is beginning to get quite calm. And I find myself now, the mind just kind of drifting off into kind of pleasant thoughts, kind of daydreams almost. And it takes a while maybe to catch on to that. Um, and after a while I catch on, I really, oh, you know, I'm spending a lot of time just drifting off. My mind is just kind of daydreaming. And um, I could do this, but this is not particularly useful for me to have the mind drift so much. Uh, maybe what I need to do is to really bring a keen mindfulness to the drifting mind. Really see clearly what's this like for the mind to be kind of so kind of lethargic or kind of so calm, it just drifts around. Or maybe what I need to do here is to try to just gently, very gently, because I don't want to lose the calm I have, but very gently try to arouse a keener sense of knowing what's happening in the present moment. Or maybe what I need to do is just develop a little more emphasis or oomph behind focusing on my breath because because I need to kind of have more energy in developing greater concentration. I'm already calm, which is good. Let's tell you if I can use that calm to get uh, um, absorbed in my concentration, get really developed into a kind of more concentrated state, not just a calm state. Um, And perhaps, you know, I'm calm and concentrated and very present. And um, then I notice uh, other things going on. I notice, for example, I might notice, for example, how proud I am of my practice, my conceit. This is really great. I hope other people are noticing all this. And, um, and, I, and I say, you know, if I pay really, really honest attention to that thought of conceit, it's really unpleasant to have it. There's a certain kind of pleasure in knowing I'm the best meditator on my, on my block. But, you know, it's, that's a kind of superficial pleasure because if I go underneath that pleasure, it's actually masking a greater sense of discomfort when I have that kind of thinking. So I'm making distinctions again between, you know, different aspects of what's going on. And I see, oh, you know, um, I don't think it's so useful for me to be caught up in this conceit. I could just let it go rampant or I could do something about it. One thing I could do about it is just be very mindful of it. So mindful of it that I'm not caught by it. Another thing I can do with it is let go of it. I'll try to let go of it. Look at that. I let go of it. I'm so good. (laughs) It's so tricky, you know, the mind, right? And then... um, And then I might notice that um, slowly, after, after, you know, an eon of time, a long time, so finally this conceit or whatever this can begin to dissipate a little bit enough to see that, you know, I'm really, everything that I experience, everything that is happening to me, I'm always understanding through the perspective of 
the self, myself. This is happening to me. I need to do something about it. I need to become a better person. It's a self-improvement project. It's, um, um, I'm trying to make a better me. I'm trying, you know, it's all about me in some way. I'm the one who's making the practice. I better, I better try more. I better be more discerning. I, I, I. It's great. It was great when I was uh, living in Japan, learning Japanese a little bit, because um, I kind of spoke Japanese like I speak English, and and uh, it, Japanese very seldomly use the pronoun I. It's just implied, you know, when you speak. So, um, you know. Uh, if I said, you know, going out the door. In the context, you'd understand, I meant, I'm going out the door. But you don't say the I. But I, but I didn't, you know, I couldn't quite do that. So I was always starting sentences, watashi wa, which is the way you say I. And it became so, you know, weird, you know, to always be saying I, 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 I. Because no one else said it hardly ever. And, um, but if I'd stayed in America, it wouldn't have seemed odd. <laughs> because we say I a lot. <laughs> and no one thinks twice about it, right? Um, we're supposed to make I statements. <laughs> and um, so you notice, oh, there's all this eyeing going on. Eyeing this, eyeing that. What would it be like if I don't do that? If I let go of that? Or what it would be like if I discovered that part of life, of my experience, that's independent from eyeing? And there's various ways of doing that. One way, for example, is to notice, is again, is to bring mindfulness to the process of eyeing. There's a lot of eyeing going on here. Everything's about me. Everything's happening through the perspective of me. It's not exactly conceit, but everything's around me, my experience. My, I'm the one who's doing it. What is it what is it like if I just bring very keen mindfulness, really see this, be very honest, and hold it in awareness for a while, this activity. Every time it arises, hold it. Just that. The number of things might happen if you do that. One of the things is it might relax and let go of. And you might find this wonderful thing of being being present for reality without doing so through the thoughts or the ideas or the construction of a self that is experiencing things. And that's a really sweet thing to experience. The other thing that might happen is you might discover that mindfulness or the awareness which is aware of the eyeing is not the same thing as the eye. And what do you do? With, so what's that then? And then you can be discerning, see that difference between the awareness, which is, doesn't seem to have any eye in it, and the eyeing, which seems to have a lot of eye in it. And what happens if I just kind of lean into that part of my experience where there's no eye, into that awareness, where there doesn't seem to be any eye? You can't even say in awareness that you know, you're aware or anybody is aware. It's just awareness kind of floating by itself in a sense. What happens if you just rest there? So, what I was trying to paint here is a whole series of kind of questions or explorations that is part of what discernment does. 
And that discernment is a very important aspect of human life and a very important aspect of the spiritual life in the Buddhist tradition. And uh, sometimes it's called wisdom. Sometimes I call it discernment, what's going on. Um, And it's something, I think, to be treasured, something to be really celebrated, enjoyed, this this aspect of the human life when it's used wisely, when discernment is used discerningly. Um, and today's talk was mostly a celebration of it or kind of focusing, kind of highlighting that aspect of our life. Remember that the five faculties operate together. So even though the talk today was all mostly about discernment, you have to remember that this is one-fifth of these five faculties which have to come into balance and work together. If you overemphasize discernment and underemphasize the other four, you'll get in trouble. But you need to have them all four kind of working together. So there's the appropriate amount of calm or concentration, stability, that goes together with the discerning. That there's clear mindfulness, clear seeing of what's actually going on. So the discerning discerning doesn't get abstract or, 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 or theoretical or, you know... Um, and there has to be a certain amount of um, engagement or applying oneself. You know, if you, I can be very discerning. And it, as I like to say, it can be like reading the menu. I can have all these ideas of what's useful to do um, and then not do anything about it. You have to order the food at some point. And discerning, discernment also needs to be together with confidence. And the confidence part is that part that, uh, that's also connected to faith which makes it a sermon, make sure this discernment is, is heartfelt. That there's a heart, what we put our heart into, rather than just some kind of intellectual exercise that uh, we might think it is if it's, uh, sometimes we hear about wisdom or discernment. We, we all have the capacity of living more, living deeply peaceful lives, living, living lives which are liberated, connected to compassion. We all have the capacity of living lives which um, are uh, sane. And the purpose of Buddhist practice is to become sane. I hope it all happens to you soon. (laughs) (laughs) To all of us. So... Excuse me for my foolishness tonight. (laughs) Thank you.